Please open your Bibles back to that text we used last week to get started in Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. We have had three wonderful passages of Scripture read to us. Leviticus 26 is some of the terrifying words of the Bible, aren't they? If you will not hearken unto me, I will punish you seven times more, and I will be contrary to you. For all those that say it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you're sincere, read Leviticus 26. It was all about whether you do it His way or not, whether you keep His commandments or not. Then we had read that warning that false teachers would arise even in the very church that Paul had started. And if false teachers would arise in that church, they're going to arise everywhere else. And then we were warned that we live in the perilous times of the last days when men and women, young people, have turned their ears away from the hearing of sound doctrine because they don't want to endure it anymore. It's too hard, it's too long, it's too boring, it's too negative. They want to have their itching lusts scratched and tickled with fables and entertainment. And that's the religious world that we live in today. And we want to be old-fashioned. As old as the old paths of the Bible. We want to fashion ourselves according to all things whatsoever God has commanded us. All we care about is, does the Bible approve of what we're doing? We don't care what men think. They're the ones that have changed. If they were to wander through our assembly, it would be like taking a time tunnel back to the 18th, 17th, 16th centuries and those before. And we don't care if they were to make fun of us. Because what we want to do is line up with Holy Scripture. Old does not necessarily mean that it's true. But truth is old. And we don't want to forget that. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28. A word of wisdom. A rule of economic prosperity from the wise preacher, Solomon. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. The rule is to protect real property. Before iron pins, computerized records, GPS, satellite pictures, and other surveying methods and record-keeping procedures, a stone, a post, a pile of stones was used to designate intersections of fields. An unscrupulous man, a thief, could move those markers and alter the one, two, or three fields adjoining his for the expansion of his own field. And you'd be hard to tell the difference if there was a pile of stones in the middle of the field and and some winter they were moved 10 or 20 feet in one direction. You could enhance your property at the expense of your neighbors. We know that that's what the intent of the verse is because of chapter 23 and verse 10. It says, Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. If there were young men or boys, orphans, whose father had died, they were to be shown extra special care. And the Lord warns, don't you dare move those property markers and take advantage of someone that doesn't have a father to defend their inheritance. This verse is repeated several times in the book of Deuteronomy where we're not to remove or move those property markers. We have taken this verse and used it for something more important than fields. We're taking it in a secondary sense, a spiritual sense. I seldom do this, and I'm telling you that up front so that you won't mistake the intent of the verse. 
And that is to remind us about the religion that we have and how we worship God. We better worship Him the way God has set and the way the apostles laid out the landmarks. We want to stay in the field. We want to stay in the way, in the path, that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ have laid out for us. We don't want to remove the ancient landmarks that tell us how to walk and how to live and how to worship and how to meet here on the Lord's Day. And so we want to consider some of those landmarks God's given us. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. There's a common expression that there's many ways to heaven. We're all going to heaven just by a different path. But we've got Ephesians 4, 5 that tells us that isn't acceptable. Ephesians 4, 5 says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We don't have a whole lot of different paths to heaven. There is one apostolic faith delivered to the saints once for all that we are to earnestly contend for. God does not accept a multitude and variety of different ways to worship Him. He expects to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's look at where those words come from in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Jesus is at a well outside the city of Samaria. And a Samaritan woman comes to him there and they engage in a conversation. She perceives that he is a prophet in verse 19. She had good perception. She said to, the Lord had said to her, when she had said, I don't have a husband, the Lord had said, well, you've had five, and the one you're shacked up with right now isn't your husband. And she said, I perceive that thou art a prophet. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts, doesn't He? He knows our resume, whether you have it current or not. He's got it current. I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then she goes on to explain about her religion. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were the ten tribes who had separated from the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin that had the true lineage of Jesus Christ, that had David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Hezekiah, Josiah, and others worshipped in Jerusalem. The ten tribes made their capital in Samaria. When they were finally taken captive by God to fulfill Leviticus 26, taken captive by the king of Assyria, the Assyrian king deported them and imported a bunch of other nationalities that he had conquered as well. And he put them in the land of Israel and in the capital city of Samaria. And so the, the, the evolution of these people were to be half-breeds. They were half-Israelites and half these imported people. They were called Samaritans. The Jews hated them and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't worship together because they had two different capital cities, two different forms of religion. And so this woman is saying, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She knew he was a Jew. 
Because she's already said, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me, a Samaritan? You worship one way, we worship another way in another place. But look at the answer of our Lord. Jesus saith unto her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen Amen and amen. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when no one in your mountain is going to keep anything acceptable to God, and no one in Jerusalem is going to be doing anything acceptable to God, because we are entering into a reformation of religion. The hour is coming. This is the beginning of the period of reformation in the Bible. Now there's two reformations. The world talks about a reformation that was started by Martin Luther in 1517, when on Halloween day, he tacked his 95 theses onto the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. We reject that reformation. All they were trying to do was reform the great whore by putting some better looking clothes on her instead of that garish purple and scarlet and the gold that we can read about in Revelation 16. Our fathers in the faith were never part of that Roman communion. They were outside it for 1,500 years. That's the reformation the world thinks of. But there's another reformation. And it's described in Hebrews 9.10 when it says that the things of the Old Testament were imposed upon the church. (coughs) The things of the Old Testament were imposed until the time of Reformation. And what was that time of Reformation? John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles of Jesus Christ taught a new way of worshiping God, and it's described right here. What you're doing in Samaria isn't going to count. What they're doing in Jerusalem isn't going to work. And Jesus eventually leveled the whole system so there wasn't a priest, altar, temple, anything. Because the hour is coming in which the Father is seeking those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Instead of worshiping in a physical temple, we can worship anywhere, can't we? If we had the uh, constitute, I've got enough insulation, but some of you don't. If we had enough insulation, we could have met outside today. And you know what? It wouldn't have made a whit's bit of difference because we're worshiping in spirit. It is a spiritual form of religion and worship, not a carnal one. The Old Testament was entirely carnal. It was a building. It was robes. It was incense. It was trumpets. It was all outward. It affected your senses. It was carnal, beggarly, weak, sensual. The New Testament is spiritual. That's why we don't have banging instruments up here. Because banging instruments do not operate on the Spirit or relate to God as a Spirit. The Bible says, sing, so we sing. Now that's a landmark that we're going to get to later. Probably, I don't even know if we'll get to it today. But that's one of our landmarks. You know, we look strange. But 150 years ago, there wasn't a Baptist church in the entire earth that had a musical instrument. They call us strange. We say, you've changed. I don't mind being called strange. Because 1 Peter chapter 4 tells me they're going to call you strange. Because you don't run to the same excess with them that you once did. Brethren, He wants us to worship the Spirit. It's all internal. 
It's our heart. It's our understanding as we relate to God. It's not going through the motions of killing a lamb and pouring its blood all out and having the flies come around and then burning that up to God. That was all outward religion. Ours is now right in here. It's in our hearts. It's in our spirits. Through the Spirit of God as we worship God who is a spirit. The point I'm making from all of that, there is only one way to worship God. And He is saying, you will worship me in spirit. It will be an internal religion and it will be according to truth. It will not be you Samaritans who have a mixed religion of taking the religion of the Jews and combining it with the religion of the Assyrians. If you go back and read in 1 Kings, there's an entire chapter about these immigrants that were forced into Israel. And it says it says that they feared the Lord and worshipped their own gods. Why? Because when they arrived there, the Lord sent out a bunch of lions and the lions were eating them. And so they sent back to the king of Assyria and say, deport us anywhere else, but don't put us here. The lions are eating us. The king asked his counselors, what should we do? And the counselors said, well, they had a strange religion. Why don't you send some priests back there to tell them how to worship that God? So a few priests went back to Samaria. It's the wrong place to worship. You're supposed to be in Jerusalem. But some priests went back there and taught them a few rudiments of how to worship Jehovah. And the lions went away. And so a whole group of people developed that feared the Lord. They knew that Jehovah was the one true God, but they served their own gods as well. See, the Lord will honor even that effort. Isn't that amazing? Is He merciful and gracious? If you'll just, now we don't want to settle for being a Samaritan, but that's what's under consideration here. He has to be worshiped internally, not in a place. It doesn't matter whether it's your mountain or whether it's Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's a spiritual religion. And the true Jerusalem is above in heaven. It's a spiritual city. And we're all members of it. And then it's got to be according to truth, not by your mixed religion of being a Samaritan. I know I just took a bunch of minutes to explain that passage. But we quote those words so many times, we better have the right sense of them. We have to worship in spirit and in truth. It is a spiritual religion according to the revealed truth of God's Word. Turn to Psalm 119. 119. Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy father have set. Fathers have set. God's given us some landmarks. We're building our case. And right now we're considering the fact that the meets and bounds of God's true religion are found in the Bible. It's not what feels good. It's not what's popular. It's not what great and godly men are doing. It's what saith the Lord that defines true religion. We're back to Psalm 119, a verse that we have used many times. It's one of the favorite verses of the Church of Greenville. And I hope that we apply it as strictly to ourselves as we do to others. Psalm 119, verse 128. 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I don't care who is endorsing that false way. I don't care how many endorse that false way. I don't care if it's my mommy, my daddy, and my four grandparents endorsing that false way. I hate every false way. We esteem God's precepts concerning all subjects to be absolutely right. These this is the roadmap for your property. This is your deed. This is the layout of your property. 
This is the pathway to heaven. This is the road of righteousness and the highway of holiness and the directions for how our church should worship God. And we cannot compromise it. We hate every variation from it. And the world is inventing things every Sunday to keep their crowds coming because their crowds are unregenerate, not born again, or carnal Christians at best. And to keep them coming, you've got to have more and more natural entertainments for their flesh or they won't come. To sit through something like we've just done for the last hour and ten minutes and what we're going to do for a few more minutes, they won't endure it. Just as the the Apostle Paul told us. He told us exactly. They will no longer endure sound doctrine. They'll heap to themselves teachers. Oh, they've got lots of teachers out there. And they're smooth operators. They're smiling all the time and telling them nice things. And there's lots of entertainment. And lots of fables. And lots of activities. And lots of programs. But what is key? Spirit and truth. According to God's Word. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Not only does it have to be in God's Word, God has to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears to see it and to believe it. The Bible's hidden to most people. Now listen carefully. The Bible's hidden to most people by design of its author. No one preaches that today. But from cover to cover, The Bible says, if you don't humble yourself to me, if you don't tremble before my words, I will blind your eyes, stop up your ears, close your heart down, so that you, and deceive you. Because you did not want the truth I offered, I'll give you what you must want. And that's to believe a lie. If you want 200 verses on that point, it'll take you from Genesis to Revelation. It's a document that's on the website entitled, Is God the Author of Confusion? He's not the author of confusion in churches because what's done in churches is to be decent and in order. But outside this assembly, he is the author of confusion. Ever read about the Tower of Babel? He is the author of confusion. You know, when the man yelled, a little higher, to the four-ton block of granite that was 400 feet above his head, and the man up there thought he said, let go. And it landed on him. That was confusion at the Tower of Babel. It says they left off their building. They left off their building. I wonder how many they had to bury before they left off. Because God did confuse them. Look at Matthew 13 and what it says. The disciples have just asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Don't you know the people do not understand you when you speak in parables? Can't you make it simpler and plainer for them? And he said, no way. I speak in parables. This is verses 10 through... 16, I'm going to read about verse 18. He said, no way. I speak to them in parables because they're going to hear me, but they're not going to understand. And I'm not going to convert them. These people are so wicked and stubborn, they've already made up their minds. They don't want the truth. They want religion that makes them happy. And so I'm not going to give them the truth. So I'm speaking to them in parables to keep them from understanding it. Now that is very different from what you were taught in Sunday school. You were taught in Sunday school that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in parables to use earthly stories to make it easy to understand heavenly things. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at Jesus. They asked Him in verse 10, Why speakest thou in parables? He said in verse 11, Because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I'm speaking.
in parables to keep them from understanding what I'm talking about. But you're going to be able to understand what I'm talking about because of verse 16. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Many prophets and mighty men have wanted to know the things that you're hearing right now and didn't get to hear it, and you are. God has to open your eyes, ears, and heart to the truth or you wouldn't care. Has there been a time in your life when you didn't really care about hearing the gospel preached or reading the Bible or praying? There was in mine. The Lord makes that difference. Praise His great and glorious name. And then He can open up this Word and He can keep it closed. Thank you, Lord. We're we're considering that there's one way to worship God. And not only is it contained here, but God also has to open our eyes so that we can see it. And we better thank Him for opening our eyes when He does. That's why Jacob said, I am not worthy of all the mercies and of all the truth that Thou hast shown unto Thy servant. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We must walk in the same steps of the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul, who was the apostle to us Gentiles. He shows us exactly how we're to follow Jesus Christ in the Christian religion. That is why the New Testament epistles are of supreme importance to us. We want to do exactly what they say. Second Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brethren, stand fast. That means fasten in one place. And hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. I don't care whether you heard it from me or you read it from me, Paul said. If it's from the apostles, I want you to hold it fast. Notice that it's called traditions. We do believe in traditions. Not Roman traditions. Not pagan traditions. Not American traditions necessarily. Not Baptist traditions necessarily apostolic traditions we believe and we want to hold them fast the traditions which were taught in the new testament look at chapter 3 and verse 6 here's how strict we're to be and we we know this this is a review about the ancient landmarks now we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Paul and the other apostles taught traditions. And they were to be held fast. And if anyone were to depart from those traditions, they were to be excluded from the church of Jesus Christ. Look at that. Withdraw yourself from every brother. It doesn't matter if it's a family member or a close friend. Withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not according to the tradition of the apostles. This is how strict God is about he, how He is to be worshipped. You heard it in Leviticus 26. We just saw it in John chapter 4 with the woman of Samaria. And here we have the rule, put them out. If they don't want to do it God's way, put them out. Keep your church pure. You ought to be jealous for the right worship of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul was jealous. Many of you read this last night in preparation for today. 2 Corinthians 11, the first four verses, describe Paul's jealousy for the church at Corinth. 
you know, he's at a distance. And he's writing this letter to them. And he's worried that they could be taken captive by false teachers. He says in verse 1, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul was afraid that the Corinthian church was so weak that if another preacher came along preaching a different Jesus, having a different gospel, and bringing a different spirit, those Corinthians would probably put up with them. They would well bear with them. And he was afraid because he knew his job was matchmaker and to present the church of Corinth as a chaste virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ, to present that church in its purity, in pure doctrine, and he was afraid that his labors would be lost because these people weren't established and he knew that false teachers were there. Because he comes down to verses 13 through 15 and says that he knew the ministers of Satan were already at work. Are you jealous for the right worship of God? Does it stir you up? Do you want to be on the right side? Do you want to preach against the wrong side? It's not because we're better than they. It's because God has said this is right and we're to hate every false way. We know and we'll confess to anyone we're the ugliest bunch of great sinners that Jesus has ever saved. It's not that we're better than others. It's that God's told us what's right and wrong and we're going to stand on the right and preach against the wrong. Because God's told us to. It has nothing to do with personalities. It has everything to do with the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Oh, I hear a modern theme. I hear the modern theme. All that matters is that you love Jesus. All that matters is that we love Jesus. I'm telling you, there are many, many churches, many, many churches that have been reduced to the theme of All you gotta do is love Jesus. You're so hung up on doctrine. I've heard this all my life. I've heard, I don't care about doctrine, I've got the Spirit. (laughs) You certainly don't have the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of Jesus Christ loves Bible doctrine. Who do you think wrote the New Testament? All we need is the love of Jesus. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say about the love of Jesus. I've already said this once, but I want you to see it in print. John 14, verse 15. Is it in red writing in your Bible? If you've got a red letter edition. I don't, so I'm I'm guessing at it. Is it in in red? If ye love me, keep my commandments. There's the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus is not clapping your hands and getting excited. The love of Jesus is not walking around saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The love of Jesus is keeping His commandments. And remember, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The churches of Jesus Christ are to stand for all things whatsoever Jesus Christ commanded His apostles to teach them. Amen. The one apostolic faith, that is how we love Jesus. We remain faithful to the religion of Jesus Christ that is acceptable to God the Father, which is based in spirit and in truth. I'm trying to tie these verses together for you. That's what we're to do. Let's continue in this John chapter 14. Look at verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I say that's a pretty good reward for keeping God's commandments. If we keep God's commandments, it's the proof that we truly love him. Jesus is going to love us. Jesus is going to present us to the Father. The Father is going to love us. They're both going to dwell with us. Does it get any better than that? And what's it all predicated on? Clapping your hands and saying, Jesus, keeping His commandments. Look at verse 24. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. What I'm preaching... This is Jesus speaking. What I am preaching, I was given by my Father in heaven. And if a man does not keep my commandments, he cannot love me. So what may we conclude about people that we meet that may be ever so religious? They may lead the praise worship team. They may be a translator of a new Bible version every year. What may we conclude about them? If they say they love Jesus, they don't unless they keep His commandments. There are rules for women in the assembly. There are rules for fathers in the home. There are rules for how we relate to government. There are rules about hair. There are rules about the Lord's Supper. And all of them are to be kept. And no matter what you say, unless you're willing to humble yourself to the Word of God in all those and many other ways, you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a hard master, he said. And he's going to hold us all accountable for what we've done. If we truly love Jesus and we want to be faithful followers of him, then we're going to keep his commandments exactly as he gave them in this precious book that we call the Bible. Let's look at a few landmarks. We looked at three last Lord's Day. Only three. We looked at the King James Bible. We hold to the King James Bible. Children, this is the Bible that you are to hold to. It doesn't matter how much money one of these publishing houses spends on trying to promote one of their copyrighted versions from which they make a great deal of money. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. The automakers in Detroit, Michigan, until Japan got their act together, thought that they could make your vehicle obsolete every couple of years and you'd have to go out and buy a new one. Then the Japanese came along and made vehicles that lasted more than a few years. I don't want to get off on that subject because that's not my subject. My subject is planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence was to require many Americans to buy new cars. Planned obsolescence of the Bible for publishing houses means you've got to go buy their new version. Listen, brethren, do you know how smart Parker Brothers is? They sold a game to America about a hundred years ago, and it was called 
Monopoly. You know, about 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, I'm getting so old, maybe it's 100 years ago, but 30 years ago, Parker Brothers sat down and said, we've got a Monopoly board in every home in America. What can we sell? Clemsonopoly. South Carolinaopoly. DCopoly. Furmanopoly. They made up a Monopoly game for every school, place, game in America. Is, is that sharp? You know, let's, for just ten seconds, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of late, aren't they? That was a slick marketing move. But we don't do Clemsonopoly with the Bible. Amen. If you go to a Christian bookstore right now and you look for a King James Bible, there's going to be a little tiny section of it. And there's going to be all this other junk that they keep kicking out every year. And the, pop, the most popular ones aren't even Bibles. Like I told you last Sunday, they're novels about the Bible. The message. The message. Go, go read what it says about itself. It knows it's not a Bible, but everyone treats it like a Bible. Rick Warren at the Saddleback Community Church, the guru of the seeker-sensitive movement, uses the message as his favorite Bible. We're going to hold to this Bible, children. They're going to try to take this away from us by various means. They're going to make fun of it. It's old. It's old-fashioned. It has these and thous in it. And you know it has these and thous in it so that it can be more accurate than 21st century English. And there's a document about that on the website. These and thous are more precise than you. The Bible has for the second person, thee, thou, thine, and thy, and it also has ye, you, and your. When it's ye, you, and your, and it's a Y, second person pronoun, it means two or more people. When it's a T pronoun, it means one person. So that when I read a King James Bible with the the, I'm, I'm, I'm taking their argument. The number one attack on the King James Bible by the average bookseller in a Christian bookstore is, it's got these and thous in it. When you see a T, the, thou, thy, or thine, it is one person, always only one person. That was a rule of high English. Second. If you see ye, you, or your, it was two or more people. Now let's talk about 21st century dumbed-down English. If you're talking in the second person, you only have one option. You. The precision of being able to talk that this conversation is about a one person or about two or more is lost. They want to take away the these and the thous. I kind of like the these and the thous. And that's taking their best argument. You know what those clerks say when someone comes in and says, Clerk, I've read the King James Bible all my life. I can hardly tell you this because I've heard this a few times and I wanted to jump completely over the rack of Bibles and save the poor person. Here's some woman. She's read the King James Bible for 60 years. She says, I've read the King James Bible all my life, but they're telling me it's hard to understand and I want to buy a Bible for my granddaughter. What, what is this NIV like? Oh, nothing's been changed. Nothing's been changed. All they've done is get rid of the these and the thous. And that poor little woman who for 60 years has trusted the Word of God that has 400 years of spiritual fruit backing it up as God's Word right. buys her granddaughter an NIV. And my, my soul's trying to crawl out of my skin in places that weren't designed for that. And it should affect you that way when I tell you. Because it should stir up your soul in jealousy for the Word of God. That's why I harp on these things. You have a Bible that God put His divine seal of approval upon 
by 400 years of spiritual fruit. They have multiplied versions since 1901 in this country. They have multiplied in excess of 100 versions since 1901. And look at the effect it's had on Christianity. Are the worshipers of God today as close to the old paths as they were when they were preaching this? Not even close. Are they sober-minded? Are they godly? Are they righteous? God has blessed this Bible. You stick with it, children. We love our King James Bible. I know. It's written about the 8th grade level. So that means you've got to pay attention until the 8th grade to figure it out. This is a simple book. Go read some of the studies that have been done on the number of words in it, the, the, the extent of its vocabulary, the simplicity of its verses. It's not a difficult book. Right. We just have a whole lazy generation that doesn't want to read. The second thing I taught you last Sunday is that Jesus Christ is not a begotten God. And without any more time on that, I taught you that on Wednesday night in more detail. And I hope that you understood the significance that our Lord Jesus Christ is not a begotten God. He is a begotten Son by His birth through Mary. But He is the unbegotten, everlasting, infinite, eternal God. Amen. Without any modification. Right. He is the fullness of the Godhead in a body. He is the mighty God. He Himself is the everlasting Father. Why is that in the Bible? That's to give us little babes a sugar stick to suck on. That Jesus Christ, His name, is the everlasting Father. How in the world can the God part of Jesus Christ, His deity, be a begotten deity from the Father if Jesus Christ is the everlasting Father Himself? I hope you can follow that. We need to go to the third one. Baptism. Children, are we Christians? Yes. How many Christians are there in the world today? Two billion. According to the Almanacs, one-third of the earth's population claims to be Christian. Children, How was Jesus baptized? Where did John take him? To the water fountain? To a canteen? Or down into the Jordan River? John the Baptist took him down into the Jordan River and they both came up out of that river. Where did Philip the Evangelist take the Ethiopian eunuch? Out of the chariot? Down to the oasis? And down into the water? And they both came up out of the water. Why was John the Baptist baptizing in a place called Anan that was near to Salem? Because there was much water there. Baptism is a picture of what? The burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sprinkling doesn't cut it. But out of those two billion, one billion, nine hundred and fifty million who call themselves Christians, sprinkle babies. One landmark. When we pass that one landmark, 95% of those that call themselves Christians take the wrong turn. And we keep going straight. And we baptize by immersion. Immersion means we immerse a person. We're dippers. We're immersionists. We bury people in water and raise them up again. And we are going to keep that. 
And we are going to be like that man I told you about down in Georgetown, the Georgetown, South Carolina, the first Baptist in the southern part, the, the south of the United States. What they name their church? Anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ. What does anti-Pado mean? We are against infant baptism. Amen. That is fantastic. The word Pado means child. That's why you go to a pediatrician when you're a child. Anti-Pado means we are against children being baptized. Baptist Church of Christ. 1704, Georgetown, South Carolina. You know, today, Baptist churches don't even want to be called Baptist anymore. The biggest Baptist church in this city was Southside Baptist Church. And now it's Southside Fellowship. Let's get rid of that word Baptist. Oh, not the Screvens down there in Georgetown. Let's have the word Baptist. And why don't we tack on that little adjective, anti-Pado? Now, how's that for political correctness? They kept it for 207 years. And then in 1911, you know, the board of trustees of that church said, First Baptist Church of Georgetown sounds a little better. And there they go down the slippery slope of compromise. Children, love immersion. Love it. It is how we give God the answer of a good conscience. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're baptized, if you're an old enough child, when you're baptized, you're buried beneath the water and you're raised up again in a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful ordinance. Stand for it. Love it. Understand that that one landmark alone will save you from 95% of the Christian world. I love that landmark. It pictures the Lord Jesus. There are three pictures of burial and resurrection and baptism. This is how good baptism is. This is why I preach a lot on baptism. This is why the biggest section, uh, section on our website of any one topic is baptism. Three pictures of burial and resurrection. First of all, when you're baptized, you bury the old man to rise to walk in newness of life. The old man goes down there and stays because it's buried in Christ Jesus and His death. And up you come by Christ's resurrection. You're going to live a resurrected life. That's powerful. Then we've got the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and His resurrection from the dead in a picture that we show back to God for which we are thankful because that's the means of our salvation. Then... There's a third picture of burial and resurrection. And that is we believe that if Jesus doesn't come back and we die and we're put out there in a cemetery, that God is going to raise us from the dead. And so it's a picture of if you bury me, I'm going to rise from the dead when Jesus Christ returns for me. It's three pictures of burial and resurrection. Get excited about baptism. We're Baptists not by tradition, but by conviction. (laughs) Yes, we are by tradition. By tradition of the apostles. By tradition of the apostles. And so that's a landmark. And we want to be faithful to it. Look at Luke chapter 16. Let's go to another landmark. I have retraced much ground. I know that. I hope all of you can understand that. The common doctrine taught today is that the kingdom of God 
was offered to the Jews. They refused it. So the offer was withdrawn. And Jesus Christ will not have His kingdom on earth until the millennial kingdom. This church age of Gentiles having churches for 2,000 years was an afterthought on the part of God. I am not misrepresenting anyone. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says this. When Jesus cast devils out of a man, they said He did it by the power of Beelzebub. He said, if I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebub, then who in the world are your preachers doing it by? He said, but if I, with the finger of God, am casting out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Amen. What in the world were John the Baptist and Jesus preaching these words for? Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is 2,000 years away in Tim LaHaye's left-behind millennial ideas. No, because it was right there. If they repented and were baptized, they joined that kingdom. And that's what it says in Luke 16, 16. Look at what it says. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. See, the time of Reformation started with John the Baptist. The way that God was worshipped began to change with John the Baptist. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Children and adults, if you have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only possible Savior from sin, who died a covenant death for His people, and you've been baptized in His name in in immersion, you are in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You have submitted yourself to Him as your Lord and your King. You have chosen to follow His ways in your life. You're in His kingdom. That's a landmark. We don't believe that the kingdom is some future idea. It's a present reality. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not waiting to be made a king. Amen. He is a king. Amen. When He entered Jerusalem for the last time, the children ran out and threw branches in the way as He came riding in and said, Hosanna to the Son of David, the King of Israel. And the Pharisees said, shut those little blasphemers up. They're ascribing to you that you're the son of David and the king of Israel. And Jesus said, if I were to shut them up, the rocks would cry out. That's my Lord Jesus Christ. I represent Him today as an unprofitable servant of His. He is king and Lord forever. And no one's going to dethrone Him. And as our brother Shadrach Meshach says, He ain't going to resign. The Lord Jesus Christ is King forever. No wonder Paul, when he's writing Timothy, lost control of his his train of thought in 1 Timothy 6. And he said, Who in his times he shall show that he is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. Not that he would be, that he is. Paul was trying to stir up Timothy not to be ashamed or afraid of preaching the gospel because Paul knew he was about to die. And he didn't want his young, timid minister to be afraid of preaching. So he reminded him, do you know who we're serving, son Timothy? I go, go read it. If you think I'm exaggerating on what the context is there, he says, I charge you by the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the blessed and only potentate. Go preach his gospel. He's king now, brethren. We're not waiting for him to be king. Look at Romans chapter 2. One more. We're going to go take a break. I'm so slow that I think I've got an outline for the whole year of 2007. If you saw what I've got here to cover, you would chuckle. Romans chapter 2. 
You know what I want to tell you right now is another landmark. I've preached so much on this, in three minutes I can handle it because you've heard it so many times. But we've got visitors and I hope the three minutes will be enough. Most of the Christian world is obsessed with the idea of the Jews and Israel. We are not Jew haters. We are not Israel haters. But the world's obsessed that those people over in the Middle East are God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people until the time of Reformation. Until John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles shifted the purpose of God over to the Gentiles. They were cut off. The Gentiles were grafted in. The vineyard was taken away from them and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Abraham knew that. Abraham knew. He's the father of them all, isn't he? Abraham knew that the promises given to him by God did not apply to a piece of land in the Middle East. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, and I hope these words sound familiar to you so that you know I'm quoting the Bible. They said he wasn't mindful of that land, but he was looking for a heavenly country. He was looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was looking for heaven when he was in Canaan. Even when you read in Genesis, Abraham, go out, look north, look south, look east, look west. I'm going to give you all this land. That is to be understood spiritually. Because Abraham was looking for heaven. When God told Abraham, your seed is going to be, is going to be so many that it's going to be like the stars of the heaven for multitude. That was not the little boys and girls that were going to come out of Sarah and be the children of Israel. That was the elect of God. I'm not making anything up. Go read the New Testament. Abraham knew that. When when God told Abraham, through you and your seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That doesn't mean that America is great because we sell F-15s to Israel. America is great because we allow the gospel to be preached to the true seed of Abraham. And the true seed of Abraham are the children of God. Galatians 3.16 said, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. I'm quoting. Listen very carefully. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not, back there in the Old Testament, he saith not and to seeds as of many, but to thy seed as of one, which is Christ. The true seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And we Gentiles are part of Christ. It says in in that same chapter, it says, If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promises in Genesis are really ours. The little tiny bit they were fulfilled, the little tiny bit they were fulfilled in natural terms does not dent the fact that their primary fulfillment was in spiritual terms. The true Israelite, the true Israelite is a worshiper of God. The true Israel of God are those that follow God, whether they are Jew or Gentile. Whether they are bond or free, whether they are barbarian, Scythian, or Greek, whether they are male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus and we're the true seed of Abraham. Look at a couple verses. Romans 2, Romans 2.28, for he is not a Jew. Romans 2.28, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Now I would think that the best way to tell a Jew from a Gentile is outwardly. You know, drop your trousers. 
That's the best way to tell the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And I, I would think that circumcision does mean the circular cutting away of some extra skin. But it says that neither of those things are true. The man that looks like a Jew outwardly is not a real Jew. Circumcision that is outward in the flesh isn't real circumcision. Verse 29, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. They'll worship me in spirit and in truth. Can you put the verses together in your mind and soul? But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You know, if you were a circumcised little Jewish boy, you'd be praising men, because you were born to a family that was Jewish. But this praise is not to men. This praise is to God who changes our hearts by His own will. This is worship in spirit and in truth. Look at Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. Many, many, many more verses could be raised in this subject. This is the last one. Romans 9, 6. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. What? That sounds like double talk. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. They are not all spiritual Israel which are of national Israel. They are not all elect Israel which are of physical Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God made a great difference between Isaac and Ishmael and all the sons of Keturah. Verse 8, that is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The children that came of the flesh of Abraham and Sarah are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And brethren, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He the Son of God? Have you been baptized in His name? Guess what? You're the seed of Abraham. You're the true Israel. You're the Israel of God. You're the children of promise. You're the true Jews. And heaven is waiting for you. And do you know what heaven is called for us children of Abraham? We're going to Abraham's bosom. Isn't that wonderful? Abraham knew that's where he was going. And that poor beggar, when he died, he went to Abraham's bosom, and that's where we're going. Praise the Lord and thank Him. I've given you just a couple more ancient landmarks of our fathers. Let's hold them, children. Don't let anyone move you away from them. May the Lord be praised.